So verse 32 begins by saying, Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. Understand what is being spoken of here when it says they had all things common. Understand that this is not teaching communism, nor is it teaching some form of socialism that the state owns all things and forces everyone to participate is what communism is about. This, what is spoken of here, is not that. This, what is spoken of here, is not that. In communism and socialism, the state owns all things and forces everyone to participate. This was not that. I mention this because there are Christians of a leftist bent who try to make this passage and Acts 2, 44 through 46, say such things. They try to take these passages and see the Bible teaches communism. The Bible teaches socialism. The difference here is striking. This was done voluntarily as this was a special time. The birth of Christianity had just begun, and they were all of one heart and one soul. It was an awesome time. And notice they did possess things. First off, what was being practiced here was done voluntarily. And secondly, notice they did possess things. It actually doesn't say they had no possessions. It doesn't say that here in this passage, nor does it say it in the Acts chapter 2, verses 44 246 passage. It doesn't say that they had no possessions. Rather, verse 32 here says, neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own. They owned things. This was not communism. They retained possessions, lands, houses. They understood, however, that they were simply stewards of what God had given them. They were simply stewards of what God had given them. And they did not sell all they had and live in some communal fashion or in some communistic fashion. Nowhere does it say they sold all they had here. Nowhere. It does not say that here in this passage nor any other passage in the Bible. Rather, it says that those who had lands and houses, that's the plural, in other words, more than one or many, sold them to give to those in the body of Christ who were in need. That's what was taking place here. This was done voluntarily. They still maintained their possessions, except what they wanted to give up in order to benefit their brothers and sisters in Christ. Look at verses 34 through 35. Nor was there anyone among them who lacked, for all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold and laid them at the apostles' feet, and they distributed to each as anyone had need. They did not get rid of their houses. Remember the passage back in chapter 2, verses 44 through 46? Verse 46 of chapter 2 said, So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house. They all still lived in houses, okay? They kept their stuff. This was just the richer amongst them helping out the poorer amongst them. That's what's being spoken of here. 
Um, if you look at chapter 12 of Acts, verse 12, you see, um, again, houses that they possess being spoken of. It says in verse 12, So when he had considered this, he came to the house of Mary, the mother of John, that's John Mark, whose surname was Mark, where many were gathered together praying. Okay? So here's this Christian woman. She has a house. They're gathered there praying at her house. All right? So this is not communism that's being talked about here. Communism is not voluntary. It's done through the arm of the state by force. This was voluntary. These were Christian people who loved their brothers and sisters in Christ, saw them in need, sold some of what they had, because they were well off, in order to help those in the body of Christ who were less fortunate than they were. What they gave was given freely not by force of the state, nor did the state own it. Very important to understand that. Now notice verses 36 and 37 of chapter 5, I mean of chapter 4. 36 and 37, it says, And Joses, who was also named Barnabas by the apostles, which is translated son of encouragement, a Levite of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Here, Barnabas is introduced in the book of Acts. This is the first time he's introduced. He's being set up as an example in antithesis to Ananias and Sapphira. He sold some land. He gave everything that it produced to the apostles. Ananias and Sapphira are going to do something quite different. So this story and introduction of Barnabas is being set up as an antithesis to what we're about to learn about this couple named Ananias and Sapphira. Barnabas, of course, would become Paul's sidekick for a time, as we'll see as we continue in the book of Acts. He was obviously a gregarious brother, as he was known as son of encouragement. So he's probably an outgoing guy, you know, like to be sociable. People like being around him. Son of encouragement. In verses 1 through 11 of chapter 5, we have the story of this couple, Ananias and Sapphira, a married couple who tries to aggrandize themselves through deception by lying and trying to make everybody in the body of Christ think they're more spiritual than they really are. In verse 1 it says, But a certain man named Ananias with Sapphira his wife sold a possession. And we know from verse 3, that the possession was a piece of land. They sold it, they sold some land. Verse 2 says, And he kept back part of the proceeds, his wife also being aware of it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. So this couple conspires together to lie about the price they received for the land that they sold. They could therefore give the impression that they had given all, when in reality they had only given some of what they got from that land. They were trying to look selfless and sacrificial while getting money unto themselves. They wanted to make themselves appear more spiritual in the eyes of men than they really were. I had an experience in my lifetime. This is a long time ago. Uh, I mean, like 26 years ago. <laughs> so that's pretty long. 
And um, I remember we had a, a gentleman who became part of Missionaries to the Preborn. He was well-spoken. I would get offers all the time to come and speak at churches because Missionaries to the Preborn was huge at that time. This is 1992, 1993. Huge. So I would give those opportunities almost always to this other guy, this other uh, brother in Christ, quote-unquote. And he would go and speak at them. And you know me, I've never been a money guy. I've never asked, did you take an offering or anything like that? Didn't even think of it, didn't care about it. I'm a task-oriented person. They're murdering people. We need to stop the murder. I don't have time for you feeling good about you know, and all emotional and eating popcorn at unplanned and all this stuff, okay? I, I find it all vomitous. It's like they're killing people, let's end the murder. And I've seen people get all excited about their dopey little, you know, pro-life stuff over the years. And it sickens me because it doesn't translate into action to see the preborn protected. Does not over and over again. So... Come to find out, as I was learning some other things about this gentleman, people began to contact me and say, what a wonderful person he was. Because when we took up the offering, we said, we took this much up and we'd like to give it to you in your name. And uh, he said, oh no, don't give it to me. Give it to the mission. Make the check out to MTP. Because that was our acronym, Missionaries to the Preborn. And um, we noticed that when we got the canceled check and actually looked into it, MTP wasn't Missionaries to the Preborn. It was actually this group called Missionary Training and Placement. Because this guy, along with his sidekick, had opened up their own bank account and was taking all this money while they appeared to be spiritual and so selfless to the people where they spoke, who took up this money, oh, don't give us any of the money. Give it to the mission. They were taking all the money. So I began to call up other churches. They did this everywhere they went. Everywhere they went. This is called wickedness. And what Ananias and Sapphira were doing here was wicked. What they were doing was wicked. Actually trying to take something that was dedicated to God, these proceeds, dedicated to God, and use it to put money in their own pockets while at the same time looking spiritual to everybody else. That's wicked. It's evil stuff. The story of Ananias and Sapphira is to the New Testament people of God what the Achan story was to the Old Testament people of God. Scholars bring this up all the time when you, when you read about this. Notice where it says kept back there in verse 2. You know, they kept back part of the proceeds. That's the same Greek verb used in the Septuagint regarding what Achan did. What's the Septuagint? It's the Greek version of the Old Testament. Understand. Written 2,000 and some years ago. Same Greek word is used. It's the same type of situation. All of these believers here in Acts would see the parallel. In both situations, possessions that were dedicated to God were kept back for oneself, hidden 
lying, deceiving for filthy lucre. Verses 3 and 4 says, But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? While it remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not in your control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. Three things I want you to notice here. Number one, he was lying to the Holy Spirit. Not just mere men like Peter. God was involved in this matter. And Peter says, why have you lied to the Holy Spirit regarding this possession, which was to be used in service of the Lord? Number two, the second thing I want you to notice here is, again, this is not communism or some form of socialism. Look what Peter says in verse 4. Was it not your own? After it was sold, was it not in your control? Even after he sold it, it's still in his control. This is not communism. It is not socialism. What was done here was done on a voluntary basis in order to help their brothers and sisters in Christ. The third thing I want you to notice is that the Holy Spirit here is equated with God. He's equated with God. And this is one of the passages we use to prove that the Holy Spirit is God, hence the Trinity. Because in verse 3, he says, you've lied to the Holy Spirit. And at the end of verse 4, he says, you have not lied to men, but to God. God, the Holy Spirit, he had lied to. And in verse 5, we see the God of justice, the God of judgment. Look at verses 5 and 6. Then Ananias, hearing these words, fell down, breathed his last. And breathed his last. So great fear came upon all those who heard these things. And the young men arose and wrapped him up, carried him out, and buried him. God is not just a God of love. He is also a God of justice and judgment. Most Christians have never even done a study on their own, let alone heard anything from their pulpits about the attributes of God. And every Christian, this is basic Christianity 101, should do a study about the attributes of God. Since we don't do that in American Christianity, have created the God of love, period. The God of love only. He only has one attribute. There are no other attributes, and that's wrong thinking. That's unbiblical thought. He has many attributes besides love. And they include the attribute of justice and judgment. But because many Christians have reduced God to this God of love only, this God of love period, many of them do not like this passage. They don't like this passage. Therefore, it's rarely spoken of. It's not in any of the, you know, Promise bread boxes you can buy. It's rarely pointed to in preaching in Christian writings. Rarely pointed to ever. They just, let's pretend it. Some even claim it is a spurious story that was added later by some redacted writer who had some bad attitude. That it is fictitious, made up by the early church, some scholars have even penned, to try and explain how certain members died before the parousia, before the coming of the Lord. That's how much current-day 
Christianity despises this passage, so ready to dismiss this, what Luke wrote, which is solid in its veracity as being a part of Luke's work. No question about it. And yet, they'll even go that far to try to make it seem other than what it is because they don't like what it teaches about God. Because they've created a false God, the God of love only. And that is not the God of the Bible. It's a false God. And while these Christians are so ready to dismiss this passage, or let's never quote it, let's never talk about it, yet they readily speak of the woman taken in adultery. A part of Scripture that historically we know the evidence reveals most likely was added long after John's Gospel was written. That's what the evidence shows when you look at the manuscripts. They don't question that because Americans have created their God of love only, their God of love period, the God who is devoid of other biblical attributes like justice and judgment. And when you create this false God, it has consequences in how you think, it has consequences in how you govern your life. We are so ready in American Christianity to downplay sin, to excuse sin, to dismiss sin as no big deal, that this passage here in Acts seems far too extreme to us. So ready are we to downplay it, excuse it, dismiss it? This passage seems extreme, seems unthinkable, seems crazy. We have no appreciation for the holiness of God. He's our buddy who actually expects us to sin. That's the thinking of most Christian men and women in America. Yet here sin is exposed and condemned for the great evil that it is and with great consequence, death. This was divine judgment. The Greek word used here regarding breathed as last is always used in the New Testament in the context of divine judgment on someone dying. God did this. Oh, not the God I know. No, God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. And the result was it produced fear amongst all those who heard it. A healthy, robust fear of God, as it says there in verse 5. So great fear came upon all those who heard these things. So three hours later, along comes Sapphira, Ananias' wife. It says in verse 7, Now it was about three hours later when his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter answered her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. She said, Yes, for so much. Then Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Then immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last, and the young man came in and found her dead and carrying her out, buried her by her husband. Notice in verse 9 it says to test the Holy Spirit. And this is the emphasis of the passage. To make us tremble regarding obtuse acts of hypocrisy and thinking it's no big deal when it is a big deal. Here they were testing the Holy Spirit, 
thinking they could get away with their deception, with their falsehood, with their lie, aggrandize themselves to everybody. Wow, look at Ananias and Sapphira gave all this money to help out when they didn't. And that is wrong. It is evil. We should not put on false spiritual airs. I despise people who do. There's people who won't attend mercy seat because I don't. And there's people who want their pastors to put on airs of non-human stuff. And I refuse to do it. Because I think it's stupid and ridiculous. We're all mere men. We should not think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think and use deceit to accomplish that end. We should understand that we're all mere men and we must clothe ourselves in humility. When this happened to Ananias and Sapphira, look at verse 11. Same thing that was said after Ananias. The word fear comes up again. So great fear came upon all the church and upon all who heard these things. The American church, the church throughout the West, they could use some great fear because she is a great whore. And there's a goodness about fear. The theology they have created is a farce that reduces God to a Mr. Rogers sort of a fellow who comes down from heaven in his cardigan sweater and says in his soft, effeminate voice, Won't you be my neighbor? That's the God that they have created. A soft God who fits right into their suburban and wealth and ease driven lifestyles. A God in a box, a genie in a bottle, who's available for them when they need Him, when they want Him, where their wills and wants just happen to be what His wills and wants are. Isn't that amazing? Hence their disdain for the story of Ananias and Sapphira. Their disdain for it in American Christianity. Let's stand up and we'll close in a word of prayer.